Good morning. Uh, I pray this has been a, a good um, first week of school for everyone. We come to the, uh, the end of the week. We've looked at Exodus chapter uh, 17. Jesus is coming. Uh, we looked at John chapter 2. He has come. And this morning we're going to look at um, passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, he will come again. Uh, by way of background, the Christian church in Thessalonica was a diverse, faithful church. Uh, when Paul arrived there on his missionary journeys, he taught in the Jewish synagogue for three weeks, uh, arguing that the scriptures foretold that the Messiah would come, but that he would be a suffering Messiah. And he argued that Jesus was that suffering Messiah. Uh, for three weeks, he argued uh, there in the synagogues, and people came to faith, and they believed in Jesus. Um, and after three weeks, they kicked him out of the synagogues because people were coming to faith and believing that Jesus was the Messiah. And so he went out and began preaching to pagans. And the pagans also um, turned and repented and came to faith in Jesus Christ. So you have this, this really fascinating, diverse church there. And Paul had an extremely warm relationship with them. He, he talks in his letters, uh, encourages them. They were consistently generous. Um, they were obedient in the face of uh, sometimes extreme uh, persecution. But after Paul left, uh, the Thessalonians realized that they had some questions that they needed to answer. Um, they had learned that their lives were part of a larger story, that their lives were a part of the story. Um, and as with most stories, the end of the story kind of informs everything that went before. Um, in our kind of cultural milieu, there's this idea that uh, the end is really not the most important thing. And I did a quick Google search and check this out. So. I'm sure you guys have heard this, right? Life is not about the destination, it's about the journey. But when you pull that up on a Google search, there are thousands of these, and they're all pretty much the same, but notice a couple things. Success is a journey, not a destination. Ben Sweetland. The journey is the destination. Dan Eldon. Success is a destination, not a destination, it's a journey. Zig Ziglar. Life is a journey, not a destination. Ralph Waldo Emerson. I honestly get to think that I could say journey, destination, not the is life, Grant Lowe. <laughs> and it would like go viral. Um, success is a journey, not a destination. The doing is often more important than the outcome, Arthur Ashe, and then my personal favorite. Sometimes it's the journey that teaches you a lot about your destination. <laughs> thanks, thanks a lot, Drake. <laughs> um, but... As I get older, as I look back on my life and my experience, um, I'm finding more and more that it's the end of the story that matters. The end of the story colors everything. A journey can be taken in vain, but the end, the end has to be right, or the story, no matter how great it was, is less. Um, I think The Hunchback of Notre Dame, if anybody's read Hunchback, the end was perfect. When you read it, you know it, and your heart and soul sing because it's right. The death of Ivan, Ivan Illich, Jaber Crow, when Bilbo and Frodo and Gandalf get on, on the uh, ship to sail to the Grey Havens. Um, Narnia, uh, things that, that are made right, fully right, because the end is right. And it doesn't have to be happy. 1984 and Hamlet, it doesn't have to be happy, but it has to be right, and we know when it is. We know when the ending is right. And we also know when the ending is wrong. It doesn't matter how good, how great a story has been. When the ending is off, 
everything in me, and I'm assuming most of us, our spirit rebels against it because we know it's not right. It's not consistent with the story. And that is what the Thessalonians are afraid of. They're afraid of an end that doesn't match the story. See, they'd learned to, re- to expect the return of Jesus, the resurrected one. Um, they'd learned that they would receive a share in his kingdom when he came back. But in the time since uh, Paul and the missionaries left, something had happened. They had friends die. And when their friends die, they found they needed understanding and they needed reassurance because they now question what's going to happen to our friends who have died when Jesus comes back. Because they died, are they going to miss out on the resurrection? Are they going to somehow be at a disadvantage because when Jesus returned, they're no longer living? And that's what Paul takes up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Brothers and sisters, We do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. The use of sleep was fairly common. It was a euphemism for death in the ancient world. Um, One of my favorite quotes that I ran about was uh, Homer talking about fallen warriors. He talks about them sleeping the sleep of bronze, which sounds cool. Um, But pagans really used it um, as a sense when you die, you go to sleep, and it's a sleep you're never going to wake up from. Um, Best example I saw was a a third century Greek poet named Theocritus. He said, hopes are for the living, the dead are without hope. And that's fairly typical for the pagan view of sleep and death. While most Jews had a hope in resurrection, most pagans lived with a sad sense of hopelessness in the face of death. Their sleep was permanent. That was it. Well, Christians began to use sleep as a term for death as well. It took on a new meaning. For Christians, the sleep of death was a sleep, but it was a sleep that you would one day wake up from to resurrected life. So Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. I don't want you to be uninformed so that you won't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Regarding those who sleep, don't be misinformed about them. We want you to know that when you grieve, You won't grieve like people who don't know Jesus. You won't grieve like the hopeless people. Death is the final sting of sin and the fall, but it has no victory over the Christian. And you will grieve. You will grieve death. It is right and it is good because death is not what God intended. Even Jesus grieved at the tomb of Lazarus. But when the world grieves, when those who don't know Jesus grieve, Think about their grief. They grieve the finality of death. They grieve the true end. They grieve forever separation, and they grieve nothingness. And nothingness is one of the most frightening things that I can think of and imagine. It's not often, but every once in a while, I'll try to imagine a life completely devoid of anything good. I think it's a fair picture of hell, but I try to think of simply not existing. And when I get close there, and sometimes I feel like God lets me get a little bit close to that, um, it, it almost brings a panic attack on, because it's too much, it's devastating, and it's hopeless. Uh, when I was in Boston, uh, I pastored a church in Boston for 10 years, and I got to know the funeral directors there pretty well. So they would ask me to do a lot of funerals for folks in the community who weren't members or parts of a local church. So I did way more funerals in Boston than I did uh, weddings. 
But I found that when people grieve um, that don't know Jesus, they kind of fit into one of two categories. The first is they comfort themselves with a lot of spiritual platitudes. They say things like, oh, he'll live forever in our hearts, or he's looking down on us now, smiling and wrapping his arms around us. Things, things that are, are, are these, these platitudes, but with no basis in reality. But we don't, I don't fault them because they're trying to hold on to something, some kind of a hope. Either that, or they simply stay surface and they won't go to the reality that there is no hope because that reality is simply too devastating. And to be really honest, the human heart can't handle that kind of devastation. But Paul says we have hope even in the face of death, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And it's interesting that Paul here, when he refers to Jesus, he doesn't say that Jesus slept and rose again. He uses the very forthright, straightforward word, died, because he doesn't want to make Jesus' death a euphemism. Because in the very real death of Jesus Christ, it points forward when we see the very real miracle of his resurrection. Although later in time, the resurrection of the people of Christ, our resurrection will literally be our participation in his resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul talks about it. This is later after uh, this letter. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. And now Paul begins to address their fundamental concern. What about our friends who are dead? Paul says, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Those who are in Christ in life remain in Christ in death. Nothing in the universe will separate us from him, neither death nor life. Anything in all of creation and all of the spiritual realm can separate us from Jesus Christ. And so in death, they are not separated either. And when he comes in glory, they are with him. And Paul begins to explain and kind of um, lay out what that means and what it looks like. And he says in verse 15, according to the Lord's word, and this is so good, this is a little bit Indiana Jones-ish, I think. Um, according to the Lord's word, there are a few places, and this is one, where I think we may have things that Jesus has told the disciples, that Jesus has said out loud, but that aren't recorded in the Gospels. If you remember, John talks about the things that he said and did could fill volume upon volume, and I think this is one of them. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Those who are still alive when Jesus returns will not have some advantage over the sleeping dead. And here's what he means. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. The first coming of the Messiah, Jesus' first coming, he subjected himself to humiliation. He humbled himself to take on flesh. He suffered as one who was accursed. He died the death of a criminal 
and he was buried in the earth. He took humiliation upon himself. But his second coming will be marked by a loud command. It's actually a military term. His very own voice, the voice of Jesus himself, the word giving the word that he is coming. And it will be joined by the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, voices of angels and trumpet calls of the heavens. Paul talks a little bit about this later um, in 1 Corinthians 15. Again, he's talking about that last trumpet, summoning the dead to rise. And Matthew 24 talks about the Son of Man sending uh, out, with it, uh, sending out um, his call with a loud trumpet call to gather his elect. And so the result is that the dead in Christ rise from the grave. Paul talks about the resurrection of the body in other places, uh, and he uses the example of a seed. He says you, you plant a seed, and that seed produces a body that's different than the seed that went into the ground. And that's a perfect picture of what happens with our resurrection bodies. The body that's sown perishable is raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It is sown a natural body, and it is raised a spiritual body. And like the Samaritan woman who longed for Jesus' words about living water to be true, that should be a call to our souls that our bodies will one day be sown natural, but raised spiritual. Sown perishable, they can die, but raised imperishable where they can't. I have friends whose bodies don't work. I have friends whose eyes are going, whose hearing is shot, nerves are messed up, hormones are off, Crohn's disease, psoriasis, Parkinson's, Guillain-Barre, diabetes, cancer, fibromyalgia, even if right now you're feeling invincible, you will get older, and your bodies will get older, and they will break down, and they are perishable. But you, by faith in Christ, will be raised imperishable. So instead of being at a disadvantage, which is what the people had feared for their friends, Paul tells the Thessalonians uh, that their brothers and sisters who, who died in Christ will actually have almost a sort of precedence over those who are still living as they receive their resurrection bodies first. He continues, but before he continues, just want to picture this for one second. Picture what happens. We don't know when it's going to happen, but at some moment, the heavens are going to open and the risen Christ in his full glory with a command from his very own mouth and a voice that we will know and recognize, the voice of God himself, he will come that all may see. And the voice of the angels and the trumpets of heaven will call the dead from their graves and they will rise and they will be given their eternal spiritual bodies and people will watch it happen. And there may be some of you who are kind of wondering, like, wait, the graves, like, are they going to actually open and walking dead-ish? Um, we don't know. Uh, scripture doesn't tell us exactly what's going to happen, but here's what we do know, right? We know that Christ's actual physical body was transformed and made into his heavenly body. So people who have died and whose ashes and uh, bones have blown over the face of the earth, when God comes, he will call the people back. And just a quick aside this is what's commonly referred to as, as the rapture. It's the parousia. 
Um, when I became a Christian, I became a Christian in the Midwest, and I didn't know it, but I was in a world of pre-mill, pre-trib dispensationalism, which taught very specific things about the end times. And one of the things that it taught was that Jesus was going to come back twice. He was going to come back first, and he was going to rapture the church, all of the believers, and then there was going to be a seven-year period of tribulation, um, after which there would be a thousand-year reign of Christ where Jesus would come back, and then there was going to be a massive battle at the end, and after that battle, Satan was going to get thrown in, and then heaven would happen. Um, there are three terms in the New Testament for the second coming of Jesus, the parousia, the apocalypsis, and the epiphania, um, and they all refer to the exact same event. Um, Jesus Christ returns once in glory, and he calls his people to himself, and he judges the living and he judges the dead, and he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. And if anybody wants to talk about that, <clears throat> please come and talk to me. I know there's a lot of um, uh, differing views of the end times that exist, but please, let's come and, and go to the scripture together. I would, I would absolutely love that. After that, says Paul, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. After the dead rise, called by the Lord himself and clothed in resurrection bodies, those who are still alive are caught up to meet the Lord. It's a strong but cool word for caught up. Um, it's the same word that's used to Philip when he's talking to the Ethiopian eunuch and he's just caught up and taken elsewhere. The same word that's used to Paul when he's caught up into paradise, into the third heaven. We're caught up. And the locale of the clouds, caught up into the clouds, it's not an accident. It doesn't mean that Jesus is somehow like riding on clouds because that's how you ride across the sky. Um, but clouds are a major part of the history of theophanies, a theophany when God reveals himself. And when you think of scripture and you think of the Old Testament, you see God in the clouds. You see him um, on Sinai. You see him with uh, going before the Israelites in the pillar of cloud and fire. You see him in the tabernacle. You see him in Solomon's temple. He comes and he reveals himself in glory and the cloud. But the best picture is in the Garden of Eden. Where, where God comes, and it, the translation we have in most of our Bibles is he comes in the cool, uh, he comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day. But that's not what it's talking about. He's coming in judgment, the wind, he's coming in the wind of a storm with his lightning going back and forth, and he's coming in judgment, casting Adam and Eve out of the garden. And now he comes on the clouds, and instead of casting out, he's calling us to himself. He's calling his children his redeemed ones. So those who are alive will be caught up and transformed together meeting the Lord in the air. And there's a final picture here for us. The word to meet there is loaded and it's beautiful. Um, when an important person, a dignitary, official, a politician in the Hellenistic world would go into a city, they would send a delegation out to meet that important person and bring them back to the city. It happened with Julius Caesar and Octavian and you read about it, they come to these cities and the city sends important people out to meet them and then escort them back into the city. And then we see it in Matthew 24 with a, the, uh, a marriage where the groom is coming and the bride and her party go out to meet the groom and then they have torches and they escort him back into the banquet hall. And it's possible, I think even likely, that that's what's happening here. That God calls his people to himself. He calls us to meet him in the air and then we literally escort him back 
to his earth and his creation for judgment and where he will usher in the new kingdoms, the new heavens and the new earth. This time, uh, unlike with the triumphal entry where creation was frustrated and the stones didn't cry out, now he comes back in full, full glory. And then Paul says, so we will be with the Lord forever. This is the consummation of everything. We will be with the Lord forever. The consummation of all the things that God was working together for our good. The end to which every thread in every story of every one of our lives leads. The end of every tear shed over sin, every knee bowed in prayer, every song sung in praise. This is God with his people who can finally see him face to face. This is the end to Adam and Eve, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and Esther and Ruth and Isaiah and Hosea and Elizabeth and Mary and you and me. This is the beginning of tears being wiped dry. This is everything. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is what awaits those of us who are in Christ. This is how we can have hope even when there is death. These are the words of the Lord himself. So Paul says, comfort one another with them. So I have the privilege to comfort you with these words. Death does not have the final say. There is no victory in death. The end of the story is perfect and it is right and it is even better than the journey. See what amazing love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. That's what we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is because it didn't know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Listen, listen. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We won't all die. But we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true death has been swallowed up in victory. Amen? Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, this ending is far richer than we um, could ever hope to deserve. Father, we ask that you would, uh, by your peace, by your uh, presence of your spirit, by your mercy and grace, uh, be with us as we live here and now. I pray, Lord, that you would transform us to be more like your son, but I pray, Lord, that you would give us a deep and abiding hope in what's to come. I pray, Father, that we would not be so foolish as to think that it is about the journey and not about the destination. Pray, Father, that you would help us live our lives instead in light of the destination. Father, thank you for the great hope that we have in Jesus, for the hope that we have for our brothers and sisters who have died before us 
And we ask you, Lord, please come quickly. We pray in the holy, the mighty, and the merciful and gracious name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.